can see it for yourself tonight here in black and white. Donald Trump, in his own words, quote, I do hereby waive formal arraignment and enter my plea of not guilty. I fully understand the nature of the offenses charged. And with those words, Donald Trump avoided what could have been a historic show next week. The judge overseeing his case in Fulton County has now given the green light for all proceedings in his courtroom related to this election interference case to be live streamed and televised. Yes, it is all going to be on camera. So far, four of Trump's 18 co-defendants have also waived their right to an arraignment and pleaded not guilty. Trump's attorney today also filed a motion to sever his case from the others who have asked for a speedy trial. That's Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough, so far two former Trump attorneys in his orbit. District Attorney Fannie Willis still wants all 19 co-defendants to be tried together, though. So we are waiting to see tonight also any moment a judge could rule on Mark Meadows' motion to move his case to a federal court. Meanwhile, there was this extraordinary moment that also happened in the state of Georgia today as the governor came out speaking about the storm damage that they have seen from Hurricane Adalia, but instead making a point to make clear he is not caving to pressure from Trump or Republicans in his state who want to punish the district attorney. And in Georgia, we will not be engaging in political theater that only inflames the emotions of the moment. We will do what is right. We will uphold our oaths as public servants. And it's my belief that our state will be better off for it. Rare words from the Georgia governor there on this matter weighing in. Now joining me is Georgia State University, Professor of Law Clark Cunningham. And thank you so much for being here, Professor. I mean, a judge could rule at any time, as I was mentioning a moment ago, on Mark Meadows and what he is trying to do here, move his case to federal court. Uh, How likely do you believe it is that he's going to succeed? And how significant will it be if he does? Well, let let me talk about the significance first. Uh, What could be the most significant result would be if Meadows succeeds in having his part of the case moved to federal court, President, former President Trump will immediately say, I get to go to Trump to federal court also automatically. And in fact, he will say everybody gets to go to federal court automatically. And that's an issue which is really unsettled in our current legal system, what the answer is to that question. But it's possible that if Meadows wins, everybody goes to federal court. And do you believe that's likely? I think, it, uh, will he win? I think probably not, but it's it's difficult to say. Uh, the, the judge asked for a briefing on a particular question that he's obviously thinking about. It looks like Judge Jones, after the hearing on Monday, is under, has come to a tentative conclusion that some of what Meadows did, uh, allegedly did in the indictment, probably did not fall within his chief of staff duties and therefore would not be the basis for removal. But maybe some of the things he's accused of did fall within the chief of staff responsibilities. And what he asked the uh, both sides to say at five o'clock a day is what they think should happen if that's the case. Yeah. If he and uh, naturally, the district attorney said. Uh, even even if some of those acts were within the chief of staff responsibility, it goes back to state court. And of course, Trump's lawyer said just the opposite. Yeah, well, we'll find out soon enough because the judge, as I said, should rule at any moment. Meanwhile, the other thing that we saw today is Trump's attorney is saying he can't go to trial in October. He can't have that speedy trial like some defendants are requesting because that new attorney is already committed to another trial that is taking place 
in that time frame. I mean, Trump just hired Steve Sadal this week, potentially knowing that he would be tied up. I mean, do you think that's a good enough reason to, to sever and not have that speedy trial? I have to tell you, I, I find this uh, timing very suspicious. Uh, so on August 23, uh, uh, Kenneth Chasebro filed his demand for a speedy trial. The next day, um, former President Trump fired his regular lawyer, Drew Finley, and hired Stephen Sato, almost certainly knowing that Cheesebro was going to go to trial before the end of October. He, if he also knew that his brand new lawyer couldn't go to trial in September and October, this frankly could be a ploy. This, he, he could have switched lawyers just to try to avoid having to go to trial with Chasebro at the end of October. Yeah. I think that's a real possibility. Well, that's a good question. I mean, he just hired him last Thursday. It was the first time they actually met, I was told. Uh, Clark, there was also this surreal moment. Today. I mean, you're in Georgia where Governor Brian Kemp was rejecting calls by some pro-Trump state legislators who, who want to have a special session where they can investigate the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, you know, without Governor Kemp's help because he can single-handedly declare that special session. I mean, do you believe it's all the more unlikely that, that Trump will be able to derail the prosecution in the way that they were clearly seeking to do if they had gotten their way here? Well, I thought it was very encouraging that Governor Kemp spoke up in the way he did in a public conference. And not only did he say he opposed calling a special session, but he went out of his way to say that based on what he could see at the moment, he didn't see any evidence that district attorney had done anything that would justify her removal. Uh, that was an important statement for her, for him to make. And a very and I, and I think a, a rule of law kind of statement to make. It was it was a good thing. Yeah, and also notable given he was the one who introduced that that new law about potentially punishing prosecutors who don't do their jobs. Clark Cunningham, thank you for your time tonight. Pleasure to be with you. And here to further break down the legal issues, and trust me, there are many. Temadayo Aganga Williams, former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, and Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Temadayo, uh, as of right now, Fonnie Willis is saying she still wants everyone to be tried together, but very clearly there are, are two defendants who are trying to do it uh, on a faster basis. How do you think this plays out with, with Trump fighting that and saying, I don't want to sever, I do want to sever my case, I don't want to go to trial in October? I think these 19 folks are not going to go to trial together. I think that's incredibly unlikely. I think there's going to be some kind of break here as more folks are filing for their own motions to sever. And then the court will have to decide what that looks like. Because, I mean, frankly, I think uh, Fonnie Willis may have her cake and eat it too to some degree. She's had a posture that's been aggressive uh, and assertive to all the defendants. But I think practically 19 defendants is just a monster that is not feasible. So I think she gets to maintain the posture uh, frankly, of strength that she's had thus far and may get the benefit of having this case broken down in a way that's going to be digestible and actually able to efficiently uh, and, and, and persuasively prosecute. Yeah, well, I mean, Ray Smith, though, is kind of arguing that he is another defendant here. He's pleaded not guilty. And he is asking the judge to divide them into manageable groups for trial. I mean, is that how how would you decide who goes in, in which group? It's a great question. And with 19 defendants, it's incredibly complicated to figure that out. But one thing that's really important to understand, the speedy trial right is owned by the defendant. It is not owned by the prosecution. And so if there are defendants, as we have here, Cheeseboro and Powell, who want to go early, they get to go early under Georgia law. But it doesn't work in the converse. The prosecutor can't say, aha, now all of you have to go early. So there's no practical way 
to force Donald Trump to go to trial two months from now in October. How do you divide it up? I mean, prosecutors love to have everyone together. I understand why Fonnie Willis is saying, give me all 19. I once asked a judge to let me try 12 defendants together, and she laughed at me and said I needed to get real. Literally laughed? Yes. She rolled her eyes at me and said, you need to get real, Mr. Honig. That happens sometimes. Um, <laughs> there's a practicality to it. I mean, I was Tom and I and I both... I was asking him, how many have you ever tried at once? And he said five, and I also tried five at once. It's a circus. It's not just five defendants. It's five de- sets of defense lawyers, five sets of paralegals, uh, and 19 is not going to happen. So you have to break it into some sort of digestible, comprehensible groups. So, But given that Kenneth Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell are asking for a speedy trial here, I mean, what is the benefit of that? What are, why would they want it to happen this quickly? And, and Trump, I mean, we know why Trump doesn't want it to happen very quickly, but what are the perks and, and I don't know, what's the benefit of that? Well, they're calling <clears throat> Funny Willis' bluff. Is she actually ready? I think when she charged the case, we presume she was ready, but they're saying, well, maybe not. If she has to get ready while she's also prosecuting and dealing with all these defendants and pretrial motions and potentially uh, subsequent investigations she might be doing after indictment, that's a lot for one office to handle. It's a lot for prosecutors to handle at one time. So I think they are testing her. And frankly, I think there may be, you know, we've talked earlier about whether this this is a coordinated ploy. I can't speak to that. But I think there are going to be benefits to the remaining defendants seeing these folks go first. Yeah. But speaking of who's going first, okay, can we talk about this? This is the mystery of the day that everyone is, is talking about. Mark Meadows obviously testified for several hours on Monday. He is trying to move his case. We should find out soon if he is successful in that. But in her filing today, Fonnie Willis responded making this point, saying that after insisting he did not play any role in the coordination of slates of fake electors throughout several states, the defendant, meaning Mark Meadows, was forced to acknowledge under cross-examination that he had, in fact, given direction to a campaign official because he sent an email saying, we just need to have someone coordinating the electors for the states. What is she trying to say there? That he perjured himself? This is quite an admission, and this is why when Mark Meadows took the stand the other day, we were saying, what a risk he's taking, right? He's a defendant, and now he's going to get confronted with his emails, and everything he admits, including this important admission, is now usable against him at trial. What Mark Meadows is doing is rolling the dice here, because if he wins, if he gets into federal court, and I think I agree with Professor Cunningham, it's going to be a close call, that's a huge win, because the next thing he's going to do is say, now that I'm here in federal court, I'm entitled to immunity as a federal official, and you should dismiss it. There's a little bit of daylight between what you have to show to get into federal court and then a dismissal. But boy, if he wins that, he's in good shape. And I think he must have decided it's worth it to take the risk, to take the stand. I know I'll get cross-examined. I know they'll confront me with things, but I need to get to federal court. You were the senior investigative on the January 6th Congressional Committee. We watched all of those hearings. And now we have heard from the judge, we're going to watch this hearing. I mean, all of the cases here. He is saying that they will live stream it. They will put it on YouTube. What's the impact of that, you think? Well, I think, you know, former President Trump has had the benefit of not having to be seen publicly as a defendant. And I think with these cases going forward, it's going to take what's happening from paper to putting it in people's, uh, in people's homes. And it's going to make it a lot more real for the American public. And I think the hearings that we, we show the American people shows how powerful those images can be. It shows that when you put forward the case, which I, is how I view those hearings, they really were a public trial of the former president before the American people. And frankly, I think by the, by the end of that, we have persuaded a large majority of this country that former President Trump was culpable. So I think the danger that has, frankly, is probably it's going to alter his uh, perception outside of the courtroom. I think the prosecutors inside the courtroom, they're going to do their job and they're going to put all that away. They're not going to be thinking about how to put on a trial for the American people. 
they're going to be thinking only about those 12 jurors. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what the media thinks or any commentator says, it is those 12 people that will decide uh, those defendants' fate. And that's where the prosecutors are going to be focused. And bravo to the Georgia courts. Federal courts need to get with it. They're not going to allow cameras, but, but they need to get with the times. Sorry, it. it's my sermon. I have to give it. Uh, they heard it from Ellie. <laughs> I know you've perfected it. It's, it's brilliant but concise. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> Ellie, Timodayo, thank you both for being here. In another January 6th case, a leader of the Proud Boys tearfully begged today a judge not to throw the book at him before getting the second longest sentence of any of the Capitol rioters. Plus, after yesterday's second freezing scare, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has now gotten the all clear from the Capitol doctor, but there are still major questions on Capitol Hill as the Senate is set to return next week. Two leaders of the Proud Boys were sentenced today, Joe Biggs to 17 years in prison for leading the far-right group's march to the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th. The second, Zachary Reel, was sentenced to 15 years. Those are among the longest sentences to be handed down to the convicted rioters. In a passionate and sometimes tearful appeal to the judge, Joe Biggs admitted that he, quote, messed up that day and had to be punished, but he asked that he be given a chance to see his daughter grow up to, in his words, take her to school and pick her up. Real, on the other hand, sobbed and said he believed election lies that were spread by politicians, but he said, quote, he's done with politics, done peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. The judge said the actions of Biggs and others on that day, quote, broke our tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. Prosecutors said that Biggs was among those who attacked police on the front line and pushed into the Capitol. Let's go straight to the source tonight with someone who was there that day, former D.C. police officer and CNN's law enforcement analyst, Officer Michael Fanone. Officer Fanone, thank you for being here. I mean, Joe Biggs getting 17 years, Zach Real getting 15. Prosecutors wanted basically double that. But do you believe that those are fair sentences? I think they're fair. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's because a federal judge uh, appointed to the court uh, who oversaw the case, uh, listened to the facts, and also was um, privy to the pre-sentencing, uh, pre-trial uh, reports, decided that that was the appropriate sentence. Yeah, I mean, both of them today in court, before they got their sentences, were crying. I mean, they were described as weeping, as sobbing. They were basically begging the judge for leniency. Do you, do you think, though, that they actually regret what they did? Uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't know. Um, I spent 20 years as a police officer in Washington, D.C. I saw a lot of defendants cry before they were sentenced. Uh, if I was threatened with any amount of time in prison, I would probably cry as well. Uh, prison's not a pleasant place to be. That being said, I think that um, what's most important or the most important factors for a judge to consider um, is when they're sentencing an individual is um, the safety of the community and also punishment. Uh, that should be, you know, the two most significant factors in, in any criminal sentencing. And I think that um, that was accomplished here. Um, they were certainly punished and they ensured the safety of the community, at least for the next 15 to 17 years. I mean, the judge had some really powerful words today as these sentences came down, saying at one point, 
What happened on January 6th harmed an important American custom. That day broke our tradition of peacefully transferring power, which is among the most precious things that we had as Americans. Notice I said had. We don't have it anymore. Do you do you agree with what the judge said there? Oh, certainly. I mean, I've spoken to uh, countless lawmakers who have uh, themselves spoken to their counterparts in foreign countries uh, and how embarrassed they are to no longer be able to point to that uh, fact in, um, you know, in our American tradition that we uh, ensure a peaceful transfer of power. So I think that the, the ripple effects of January 6th will, uh, will come to haunt us for probably all of eternity. Yeah, and it, they're not anywhere close to being done yet with these with these convictions and sentences. I mean, they're do- deciding the fate of another January 6th rider. This is Brandon Fellows. He is facing a federal charge of obstructing an official proceeding, aiding and abetting misdemeanors as well. He was found in contempt of court after he had called the court a Nazi court. But what was star- striking to me here was jurors were so alarmed by his outburst that they wrote a letter to the judge and it said, We want to confirm that the defendant does not have any personal information on individual jurors since he was defending himself, including home, addresses, etc. The judge was saying that basically they got limited biographical information on the jurors and those are taken back at the conclusion of the trial. But, I mean, what does it say to you how concerned they are that that someone convicted here might have their information? Uh, Well, I think they should be concerned um, as somebody who has testified about the events that occurred on January 6th and then suffered um, the repercussions. I mean, I I receive threats even to this day on a daily basis. Um, And some of those threats are uh, overt. Um, Most of them are just the keyboard warriors that like to um, post things on social media. But there have been Uh, enough times in which people have appeared at residences, either of mine or of my relatives, uh, that I would tell those jurors that they should be concerned uh, and that they should express those concerns to law enforcement because it's law enforcement's responsibility, especially as um, jurors uh, or as witnesses uh, in these many, many, many uh, trials to ensure their safety. I mean, two and a half years later, you're still getting overt threats? Yes. I got one this evening. Wow. Just remarkable. I mean, it just kind of, what do you think when you hear, you know, the second Proud Boy leader who was sentenced today talk about how he was influenced, you know, by, by the lies that were spread by politicians was the quote he used. I mean, I appreciate the fact that, um, you know, he's had his come to Jesus moment uh, when threatened with, you know, more than a decade in prison. Uh, but I uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to have the influence on other Trump supporters and MAGA supporters and other elected members of our government who continue to peddle the lies, knowing full well uh, at this point, um, having no excuse not to that this is the result, uh, that it inspires violence um, and that it inspires individuals to threaten fellow Americans um, 
over things that they know are not true. Officer Michael Fanome, thank you for your time tonight. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Meanwhile, a seven-hour deposition unsealed from saving the planet from a nuclear holocaust to claiming he is the most honest person in the world, at least in the friends of, eyes of his friends, Donald Trump, in his own words, to the New York Attorney General's office. Tonight, the Department of Justice says a man from Texas has pleaded guilty to making violent threats against public officials in the state of Georgia after the 2020 election. Prosecutors there say that Christopher Stark posted the message online on or around January 5th, 2021, a day, of course, as we were just noting, before supporters of the former president stormed the Capitol. According to court documents, Stark threatened to, quote, exterminate unidentified officials and judges. State officials in Georgia, of course, have taken the brunt of some of the worst abuse and the threats, including Republican Governor Brian Kemp, simply for standing up to the former president and his allies and standing in the way of their effort to overturn the election. Joining me now, CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, also senior political correspondent for The New York Times. Maggie, I mean, we have been talking about what Kemp said today, basically resisting efforts by Trump and his allies to, to have a special session to investigate Fonnie Willis. But there was another thing he said about Trump and the way he's running his campaign without mentioning Trump by name that was really notable. I can tell you that as long as I'm governor, we are going to stay focused on the issues that help all Georgians. That is the way you win races. That is the way you move forward. Things like cutting taxes, doing $2 billion tax rebates, suspending the gas tax, that saved our families and our businesses $1.7 billion. Teacher pay raises, law enforcement pay raises, going after street gangs, not focusing on the past or some grifter scam that somebody's doing to help them raise a few dollars into their campaign account. Grifters scam? I mean, it's subtle, but you know, if you listen closely, <laughs> you can figure out what he's talking about. Uh, that is, uh, so I actually hadn't heard that clip until you just played it. Uh, it's really, really striking, and it's striking on a couple of fronts. Kemp is someone, as you know, who not only resisted Donald Trump's efforts to subvert the election results in 2020, he is somebody who has repeatedly pushed back on this over the last two years. And he is someone who defeated a Trump attempt to try to take him down in a mm -hmm. primary. And so it is meaningful coming from him because he is a Republican who donors are focused on, who some Republican voters are focused on as a future face of the party. Um, the, the fact that he is zeroing in on Trump's uh, use of his super PAC, which is filled, or was once upon a time, filled with money, now it doesn't have very much money in it at all, filled with money that he raised in the days and weeks after the election on his claims that he needed money to combat widespread fraud that he insisted existed, which was never proven and which has been debunked widely, that he is singling that out in such stark terms is quite revealing about where he sees the race right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of buildup there about what Republicans wish they were talking right. about, but then he calls it, I mean, grifter scam. And it made me remember of just a few weeks ago, he met with Governor DeSantis. He met with former Vice President Pence. I mean, he's been talking to these 2024 hopefuls quietly, but They've been talking. Yeah, he, he is looking at an alternative to Donald Trump. Whether he is going to actually do something more, I think, remains to be seen. Again, there's two names that keep coming up among donors. And, and donors are not great 
predictors, <laughs> right, of where Republican primary politics are going, as we have seen at least over the last two cycles, 2012 a little bit more so. Uh, but you hear Brian Kemp and you hear Glenn Youngkin. And so I think that Brian Kemp has been pretty careful about how he is projecting himself and casting himself. But I do think he wants to be part of a broader conversation about the future of the party. And you see that, as you said, in what he's what he's saying Republicans should be discussing. Yeah. Trump also, back in April, he sat for a seven-hour deposition with the New York AG's office and their lawsuit against him. We just got to actually read this lawsuit. I mean, there's a lot to it, but there's a few moments that stick out. You know, in one, and of course, this is going to, to trial in a few months, but he's asked about the relationship with his company and who's the one with the ultimate decision-making authority. And I noticed he said no. And the AG's office asked, who would that be? And he said, my son Eric is much more involved with it than I am. I've been doing other things. And then he said, you know, he's involved in major final decisions, you know, whatever. Uh, that was his quote. I mean, when you read that, what do you think he's saying about Eric Trump's responsibility for the decisions they make? Well, look, I think that Eric Trump became, in many ways, the face of the company and the person who was dealing with the company while Trump was in the White House. He would often tell people to talk to Eric. But there was always a question of how much of a remove Trump was putting himself at with the with the business. I know that my colleagues and I worked on uh, some matters related to that a, a couple of years back. He is still making Eric the front person in the context of this lawsuit, which, you know, is, I, I think, notable because he is often looking to put other people forward. Now, whether that is actually valid, because that's how it was over the last couple of years, I don't know enough about what the situation was like, but it is notable to hear him not present himself as at the top. Yeah, saying someone else is the yep. the responsible party. I mean, this transcript just kind of goes everywhere, and it seems like the attorneys doing the questioning, like, they had difficulty getting questions in. But at one point, Trump was saying, you know, they were asking about his business, and he was saying, quote, I was very busy. I was considered, you know, this is the most important job in the world, saving millions of lives. I think you would have a nuclear holocaust if I didn't deal with North Korea. I think you would have a nuclear war if I weren't elected. And I think you might have a nuclear war now if you want to know the truth. I mean, that's not a new sentiment for him, but the yeah. fact that this is something he's saying while he's giving a deposition for under oath. under oath for this lawsuit. I mean, it's just it's an amazing distillation of this conflation of his presidency with his business and everything else in his life. And as you know, there is this incredible flattening effect with Donald Trump where everything becomes kind of the same and all connected and all related. And I think that's what you're seeing there. It is striking because it, you know, among other things, I'm not sure what it has to do with this lawsuit into his company, um, but he has often projected himself as sort of bigger than what issue is, is at hand with one of his lawsuits. What I was struck by reading some of the meanderings in this deposition, as you, as you noted, is it reminded me a lot of the transcript of a deposition in a lawsuit he brought unsuccessfully. He lost it against Tim O'Brien, uh, the journalist mm -hmm. for libel, 20 years ago, where there was lots of, you know, sort of digressions and discursive talking and boasts and talking about his feelings about his wealth, as if that was really the most significant factor. Um, I, you listen, to, you look at this transcript and you can see how much he misses the power he had while he was president. That's what stands out to me as he's talking about North Korea. Hmm. Which he is obviously seeking to reclaim. Maggie Haberman. Thank you, as always. Thank you. Mitch McConnell got a doctor's note today. He now says he is clear to return to work after a second public freezing incident. 
Even President Biden said today that he was not concerned about the health of the Senate Minority Leader and whether he could do his job. But behind the scenes, some Republicans might be. My colleague Mani Raju will join us from Capitol Hill next. Senator Mitch McConnell's office says he is, quote, medically clear to return to his full schedule after a jarring episode where he froze for a second time in just a matter of weeks. This is based on a statement from the attending physician of the Capitol who consulted McConnell's neurology team but did not actually examine the senator himself, I should note. There are still many unanswered questions tonight after the 81-year-old froze for nearly 30 seconds on camera, his second episode in just five weeks. President Biden himself says that he spoke with McConnell today and that he's doing well. This is all self on the telephone. It's not un- at all unusual to have the response that sometimes happens to Mitch when you've had a severe concussion. It's part of, a, it's part of the recovery. And so I'm confident he's going to be back to his old self. CNN's chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, is on Capitol Hill. Manu, I mean, obviously the Senate is coming back on Tuesday from recess. They're all going to be facing questions about this. What are you hearing behind the scenes? Yeah, there are a lot of concerns, and senators, when they come back into session next week, I expect them to be very cautious when addressing these very sensitive health issues involving the Republican leader. Remember, this is an institution in which a majority of members are in their 60s and 70s. A lot of the members have health issues themselves and know what it's like to have the scrutiny on them. The question will be, how much information does Senator McConnell reveal to his colleagues when some of when these issues may come up behind closed doors? McConnell is known as someone who has keeps his cards very close to the vest, and he has been very resistant to providing any details about exactly what is going on with his health. The most we got was that very brief statement from a doctor clearing him from from work, but really not describing the underlying issues at hand. Though I am expecting, Caitlin, and I'm already hearing increased chatter about what's next after Senator McConnell's tenure atop the Senate GOP conference. He has led this conference for 16 years. He's the longest-serving Senate leader of either party in U.S. history. But there is a growing expectation that this Congress will be his last running the Senate GOP conference. That means that at the end of the, after the 2024 elections, there will be a leadership election. At that point, there could be successors. And already there is discussion about potentially Senators John Cornyn or Barrasso, all potentially vying for that top spot. So that will be the big focus. But for now, Mitch McConnell hanging on, at least for another year. Mm. Manu Rashu, thank you for that reporting. Perspective now from CNN political commentator and former Biden White House communications director, Kate Bedingfield, also CNN's senior political commentator, Scott Jennings. Scott, of course, you are also Mitch McConnell's senior advisor, and I know you saw him yesterday. You've known him your whole life. You know, how was he when you saw him yesterday? Uh, You know, honestly, I saw him last night after it happened, and he was perfectly fine. He had come back to Louisville from northern Kentucky to participate in a fundraiser for uh, Jim Banks, who's running for the Senate in Indiana. He made remarks, took questions, and uh, we met uh, for a few minutes. I talked to him for about 15 minutes on the phone this afternoon, and You know, he sounded great uh, this afternoon as well and uh, was kind of ticking through a bunch of different uh, issues that were on his mind today. So it's it's interesting. If you hadn't seen the video or you weren't aware that something had happened, you would never have known anything had happened because, uh, as President Biden said, uh, he sounded like his old self. I mean, but Scott, just to quickly follow up on that, his office said that he paused due to lightheadedness. But 
I mean, the video, you see it's much more than a pause. Had you ever heard any questions behind the scenes from other people about concerns about his, how he's doing? Uh, no, actually. And the only two times I've ever heard of this uh, happening were the one uh, at the press gaggle at the Capitol a few weeks ago and, and this one. I've, I've been kind of tracking him all of August, to be honest with you. He's been home in Kentucky. He's done a number of big political events. He's made several big speeches. He's done media uh, gaggles. He's met with constituents. I've been around for, for quite a bit of this. And, you know, he's kind of keeping up his normal Mitch McConnell schedule. Uh, and, you know, even after his uh, moment yesterday, he took two more questions at the event, then hustled back to Louisville and did his fundraiser. So it, it doesn't appear to be slowing him down. And I have not heard anybody uh, behind the scenes say they've seen any impact on his ability to function, his cognition, his uh, memory, you know, his command of the of the issues. It's all all pretty normal and business as usual for him. Kate, you heard from President Biden. I mean, he didn't raise questions about McConnell's future. He said he didn't have any reservations about his ability to, to continue to do his job. But I mean, Democrats are in this position. They can't exactly you know, raise questions about his age and, and future as the leading Republican, given this is also an issue that they confront themselves in the Senate with Senator Dianne Feinstein, but also President Biden's age is something that comes up time and time again as he is embarking on this 2024 run. Well, and that's also just not something President Biden would do as a person. That's just not the way he, he doesn't think about trying to score points off of somebody's uh, ill health. And so that's you wouldn't hear that from him regardless. That's just not the way he, he operates. But, you know, I think this does raise a larger question, uh, certainly for the Republican Party, for the Democratic Party as well. But, you know, as we're starting to think about what do the next generation of leaders look like, uh, particularly in the Republican Party, you know, a lot of the the uh, most vocal youngest members of Congress in the Republican Party are, they are solely MAGA, uh, they're MAGA voices. They're some of the loudest voices on the far right of the party. There aren't a lot of young members who are up and coming who can come kind of under the wings, under the tutelage, under the expertise of somebody like Mitch McConnell as he's starting to potentially uh, think about transitioning out. And so I think there's there's the, certainly the the question, uh, the immediate question of, of the, uh, the leader's health, but also this broader question of where does the party go and how does it uh, how does it start to bring up uh, some of the younger members and bring them into leadership in a way that's more inclusive than just the hard right uh, MAGA wing of their party? And there aren't a lot of options for that right now for the Republicans. Oh, oh, and one bipartisan issue is voters on both sides of the aisle are concerned about aging politicians. We'll have to leave it there. Kate Bedingfield, Scott Jennings, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Ahead, a Supreme Court admission on some controversial omissions by Justice Clarence Thomas under fire for alleged ethics ethics breaches, what Thomas now says about those private jets and lavish trips that have been under scrutiny. Tonight, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is officially disclosing private jet trips in a vacation that was funded by a Republican mega-donor. The updated disclosure claims that previous omissions of these gifts were strictly inadvertent. Of course, this comes after reports that Thomas failed to properly disclose several luxury trips, real estate transactions, other gifts that were bankrolled by his wealthy friends. Justice Samuel Alito also amended his forms, disclosing a trip to Italy that was sponsored by a conservative group that has filed Friends of the Court briefs before the high court. Let's talk about all of this with someone who closely follows the Supreme Court, NPR's legal affairs correspondent, Nina Totenberg. And Nina, thank you for joining. We did hear from a lawyer for Justice Thomas who put out a statement saying that he has 
always strived for full transparency and adherence to the law. But I think that might raise some eyebrows given, I mean, look how long it took to, to reveal this. Well, we've seen a plethora of stories in the last year from ProPublica and other news organizations uh, about uh, the justice's benefactors, people who have given him plush vacations, um, help in uh, a loan secured to fund a, a, a big fancy RV, uh, the variety of issues that have come up has been really pretty substantial. And the justice has, as far as I know, not contested the accuracy of these pieces that have been published in a variety of venues. Now, this year, he asked for a delay of three months, um, which he's entitled to do and was granted, to make his disclosure form for 2022. And what I found so interesting about this was not the revelations of several jet trips provided by Harlan Crow, his friend, uh, who's a big Republican mega-donor, but the fact that he used the 2022 disclosure form to telegraph that he's not going to tell us what he perhaps might have disclosed in for the last 30 years, uh, because he says that for those years, the rule was, as he understood it, and has not been disputed, he said, um, the rule was that you could accept any kind of a gift without disclosure from a personal friend. Um, mm -hmm. So he, on the one hand, is quite forthcoming in this disclosure, and on the other hand, he ticks out a couple of issues that have proved particularly embarrassing, rebuts them, even though they are from much earlier, and, and then uh, goes on to say, and basically, I didn't have to disclose any of this until now. Yeah, it was, it was noticeable that he put that extra defense basically here. But the other thing he said was that he flew private in May because of, quote, increased security risk after the leak of the Dobbs opinion, of course, the one that eventually overturned Roe versus Wade. Another explanation that was listed for flying private was an unexpected ice storm. I mean, on the, on the, because of the security risk of Roe versus Wade, I mean, there were other trips and other lavish expenses before Roe versus Wade happened. I mean, do you think that's a, a justifiable excuse? Well, these were trips that he had to disclose pretty much under the new rule that has been published by the Judicial Conference. There was far less wiggle room. Um, so without the wiggle room, he did have to disclose them. So he gave the reasons why he said he took these flights from Harlan Crow that were provided by Harlan Crow on his, on his private jet. There are, I hesitate to say, only three of them. One of them was for a vacation to Harlan Crow's estate, and the other two were when he was going to give a talk in Texas, and then had to go home because of the ice storm, and then when it was rescheduled, he went round trip, only this time the, the reason he gave was different. Hmm. A lot of questions still here tonight. Maybe we won't get some answers. Nina Totenberg, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.